sang this song to me There was a message in his melody Sweetest lyrics that I ever heard There's a message in the songs of words Tomorrow is another day Living is the only way Tomorrow's gonna ever come Listen to the words of the song anymore unfortunately uh the results came in uh last week <laughs> oh, no. um, um i was not quote unquote victorious but it is what it is it's all good oh gosh <laughs> but at least you gave it a great try yeah. and you're still active in um in the school board You're still active with the school board, right? Yes, ma'am. Yeah, cool. I've been active in uh, so, I've been active in Arlington uh, public education and youth advocacy since 2006. Cool. Since 2006. Wow. Yes, ma'am. So, tell us a little bit about your background because you've got an impressive background, West Point and all. This we don't get to see that in people well, who look like us a lot. Uh, I'll take. Well, I'll give you the cliff note version of the cliff notes. Um, since we're short on time here. <laughs> so uh, I'm a fourth generation veteran. Um, my family's been serving consecutively since World War I, starting with my great grandfather. At least that's the earliest we have documented. Uh, my dad's a retired Marine Corps Colonel Mustang. Uh, as you stated to your audience, I myself am a West Point graduate, class 2000. My little brother followed in my footsteps and graduated four years after me. He's still currently serving on active duty. I primarily consider Virginia my home because we've lived here since I was in the fourth grade, 1986. My dad's uh, kind of technically our last, uh, uh, our last duty assignment here. Um, uh, got out, yeah, served in Iraq from May 03 to July 04. Uh, most of that time being in Baghdad, uh, in Tisa Nissan's district, uh, the Tisa Nissan district, which is Baghdad's second largest district. Had a great time. I technically was the government person, so mm -hmm. I revamped the, that district's municipality um, and served as its liaison to every government facet uh, that was functioning uh, within the country. Resigned my commission in 2005, moved to Arlington um, during that time period, and um, resigned from the Army with the intent purpose to be involved in community activism or whichever Josh. term people like to use uh, to define what people like to use. Um, so yeah, so since 2005, I've been involved both in the community and politically, which to me are technically the same things. It's just two different sides of the coin, so. <laughs> so I prepared a list of questions for you. One of the questions that's always interested me to people, especially with a military background, and a West Point yeah. background who end up in a political advocacy role or interest. How did that happen? What was your ultimate goal when you decided to enter into the political arena? It's a fair question. Um, I'll leave the ultimate goal 
to myself. But what I will say is that uh, when I was in Baghdad, I was in a very unique position with respect to my quote unquote job. So on paper, I was a field artillery officer um, in a light cavalry squ uh, squadron and, and regiment. And so I'm a warfighter by trade. I'm just and I'll just keep it simple like that. But because we quickly moved into civil military operations, uh, that late June of 2003, automatically was um, I was dubbed by my squadron commander to be the guy to to do all the government stuff, which I, which meant that I also had to work directly with the community in order to build their local government and get the municipality up and going. And during that process. Um, I literally came to fall in love with working with people. Uh, when people ask, what do I do? The, the philosophical answer I give them is that I do good work with and for good people. And that's what I uh, ended up doing when I was in Iraq, especially during that 12 month period mm -hmm. when we were in Baghdad. And um, you, know, you had that going on, you had, uh, which was incredible. You had also the presidential campaign going on too, and then the media coverage that was going on behind, uh, behind what was going on in, in theater. And all these things were, were kind of culminated to me realizing that I could serve a greater purpose to both my country and to the world as a civilian um, than, as in that, than continuing my service in the Army, as much as I yeah. love the Army. And so I made the conscious decision um, about halfway, two thirds of the way into the, to, into the original deployment, because we actually stayed three months longer than we were supposed to. Um, oh, uh, wow. Yeah, that, I loved doing that. And I knew that my time, if I, just, if I were to have stayed in the Army, I would have deployed again, which I wouldn't have been upset about. But I knew that what I was doing as a lieutenant and as a captain, I was not going to be able to do the next time around, right? It was a flash in the pan. Okay. Um, and so, yeah, so all that kind of less led me to doing what I'm doing, and I love it. Absolutely love it. So I, I've worked with a lot of men who spent some time in various, I guess, conflicts between Beirut all the way to Baghdad. And then when they get home, there's a different sense of purpose that comes yeah. across to them. So was that your experience too? You all of a sudden saw the need that you could feel in, the, in this country on this soil? I believe so. Um, I would say yes. Um, I knew deploying that I was a leader but when we got to Baghdad and we started really doing things, that's when uh -huh. I truly realized that I was a leader. Um, and as, you know, as I stated in, earlier, that period of my life truly gave me the purpose for, for what, yeah, truly gave me my life purpose. Because before then, I had things that I wanted to do, um, whether it was stay in the army, whether it was to get out and go get an MBA, work on Wall Street, but none of those were none of those were passionate endeavors, right? It was just things to do or cool things to, to do okay. for a while. Whereas that period in Baghdad truly gave me the purpose to do what I do and everything I do comes back to that. 
Okay. We talked a little bit about uh, the political climate today. Yeah. But first I want to ask, so when you got back here and you knew you had a purpose, in your mind, in a perfect world, what problem would you solve? <laughs> <laughs> Woo, where do we start? <laughs> I know, that's right. Um, for me, it wasn't so much, well, let me, well, I'll, I'll say this. So from a, from a defense perspective on what I do, um, the Department of Defense perspective, what I do, um, because of, so as you're aware, as your viewers are, are, are aware, we have a, in our constitution, we have civilian control of the military. Um, when you are, when you're, when you're in uniform and you're stationed on, pick your favorite base, you don't really see um, how that interaction exists in reality. But when you deploy to theater, especially with what I was doing, mm -hmm. you truly saw how the how the how civilian leadership affected military leadership, and oh. there were too many times during 2003, 2004, where senior civilian leadership like Paul Bremer and so, you know, primarily Paul Bremer, um, did not trust um, the guidance and the advice that he was receiving from senior leaders like General Dempsey and only did so out of fear. And as my father explained to me my sophomore year at West Point, you can't allow fear to control your actions. Um, and I saw time after time where military leadership was providing truly sound guidance that would have made the situation in Iraq a whole lot better than it is now. And they wouldn't listen to them. And I said, this is part of the aspect of why I've got out. And I said to myself, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to have, I'm going to have several friends who are one day going to be in the same position as General Dempsey and these other general officers. And I want to ensure that I am in a position to where I'm either the one providing the sound advice to that civilian leader, or I am that civilian leader who is there to support my friend who's in command, who's providing sound, and guide, sound, sound advice and guidance and needs that, that true support. I, I never expected that to occur, uh, not having any really military experience myself, looking from the outside in. Yes, ma'am. Civilians just think that you guys like have it all together and that the communication is flowing and everybody's agreeing all the around the lines because we're winning, right? Right. <laughs> <laughs> you just now, make it look good. <laughs> yeah, you just make it look good, okay. <laughs> so in today's environment, in light of the civil unrest, or mm -hmm. as uh, I think it was the role called the civil disobedience, uh, what issues do you think we should focus on? I know there are a lot of issues on the table. So what do you think the key issues are? And how should we as a country focus on changing or seeing the changes that we want? How do we focus on that? How do we get it going? How do we get it moving? So we as Black people are in an extremely unique position today. Um, we weren't three weeks ago, but we are today. Uh, what most people don't understand 
is that, you know, during the modern civil rights movement, right, which started, say, in the late 1950s and continued to, say, the mid to late 1970s, we were able to achieve um, what we have now because there were various aspects of, um, let's say, our government apparatus, society, societal apparatus that were working um, in tandem, whether, whether officially or not, that helped bring us to that place, right? So you had folks like Dr. King and so forth who were doing mm -hmm. the protest. You had um, Charles Hamilton Houston and, and Thurgood Marshall working the legal piece, right? Bringing cases forward uh, to, the, to the federal courts and Supreme Court and so forth. And then you had, and then you had legislators um, like Adam Clayton Powell Jr. Mm -hmm. and then eventually uh, LBJ who were, press, who were pressing uh, legislation. Obviously LBJ needed the pressure um, from, um, from Dr. King and them, but those, those, let's just say those three entities working in that tandem was able to get us there because the years previous, you know, you would have, um, you know, black people either protesting, then, the, then a quote unquote riot would happen and we'd get squashed, right? You would have black business people um, getting us close to a point to where we truly had something, but then they were squashed. But None of, none of all these other pieces are working together. But now, today, we are at a point where we can bring those pieces um, into action again. God knows we needed the legal piece. And that's a whole different conversation right now with the way the Supreme Court and the federal courts are being structured right now. Um, but from the protests to the legislation, we are now putting the pressure on to where we can begin I would say, I wouldn't say attaining additional rights, but getting to that point to where all of us are truly we the people, to where our constitutional rights are, are, are uh, recognized to the point to where we don't need all these additional, um, I guess, pieces of legislation to, to mandate what our rights are. So I think it's a unique period. Uh, I don't see the protests stopping anytime soon. You know, when you have white people marching in the suburbs, down the streets in their own neighborhoods um <laughs> and you go to you know yes. I, my, my wife and i were in, in dc last saturday and it was like this weird eclectic party and i'm like these people aren't leaving anytime soon you know unless things get shoot even if things get really crazy because they're having a good time promoting pop change and needed positive change for that matter. So it seems as if for the first time in decades, this could probably be our perfect storm. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, you've got protests, which we do need. I believe that there is the value in all of the protests. Mm -hmm. We do have now uh, not just African-American attorneys, but we've got organizations, the Innocence Projects, the ACLU, we've got the uh, NAACP who are running the legal part of it because you do have to have attorneys to get people out of jail and right. to actually propose legislation to get it through. And we have um, officials, uh, senators and representatives now that are seeing the light. Now whether it was a voluntary eye opening or if it was an eye opening because they looked out and they saw the street painted, right? Um, but it's still an eye-opening nonetheless. So this 
time, I feel, I don't know that it'll be the last time, but that perfect story inside of me says, yes, let's hope this will be the last time where we can get to the we the people where we really are, we the people where we have the same goals and everyone has the same rights. Right. So in your community, what would be some of the first legislation you would like to see changed in your community um, that could be, I don't want to say easily changed, but it could make an effect or have a positive change on the way things are happening. Right now, we're talking about a lot on the news about the police violence. So what law or practice would you like changed in your city that could probably be changed in other cities that will help us move in the right direction? So thinking strategically the, the the first thing that has to that needs to occur in the commonwealth of virginia as a whole is they've got to get rid of the dylan rule uh, we're not sure if there's any legal mandate to it but this is how all of our jurisdictions function from a legislative perspective mm -hmm. and so what the dylan, what the dylan rule is for those who don't know is uh the the local jurisdictional um governments whether it's city council county board of supervisors county boards they're very limited on the types of policies that they can enact. So a good example, um, sticking with, with this current theme, is there were, so the city of Alexandria, the majority of actually their entire city council wanted to tear down the Confederate monument that's standing in the middle of Old Town, Alexandria. Mm -hmm. But there's a law, or there was a law up until two weeks ago that didn't allow city councils to make decisions to remove statues, in this case, Confederate statues. Um, and so it goes, some, it goes to that, to things like taxes and just things that you would think a city council or a county board would be able to do that they can't do unless um, the House of Delegates and the state Senate uh, pass legislation for the governor's sign. So that's the first thing I would do because obviously people at the local level know what they need for themselves more so than to say the people hanging out in their state capitals. And so th that, that ability to exercise um, crafting a policy at the local level is, is needed first because that, that further empowers the people. Um, you know, for me, the, the other piece, and Arlington's a unique place. Uh, we, we used to have a very respectable uh, black population. Um, after global war on terror, there's a, a passive form of gentrification that occurred and a lot of a lot of our folks have moved out, um, but the socioeconomic gaps are huge. Uh, and so for me, it isn't necessarily more so of the passing of particular laws that we need, but more so of our elected officials knowing how, well, one, actually becoming part of the community, period, because they're not that. They show up once or twice a year when it's convenient for them when they need something, and then you don't ever see, you don't see most of them ever again. Uh, but, you know, we're, we're in this era where um, our, our revenues are, are not what they ought to be or what they need to be. And partnerships need to be formed uh, with the private sector um, in order to fill those gaps and provide opportunities to our students who mm -hmm. either don't have the personal wherewithal or um, th th their families are such to where um, they're not naturally inclined to go access those resources. You know, I'm the type of person, like an adult, I don't give, I don't give adults too many passes, but for little kids, I'm like, you've got to get, you've got to bring 
the resources to the children. Yes. Um, and with how well resourced we are up here in Arlington County, there's no excuse for the adult leaders to not put themselves in a position to provide every tangible resource to our kids as possible. So, th th yeah, those would be the things that I would be focusing on. So when it comes to the children and resources to the children, uh, because it's, it's easier to start with children, what are some of the resources that the children are lacking? What are the perfect world? What three things do you think we need to start with? And can they be replicated in other school systems? Because you're right, we need to start with children. Yes, ma'am. So pretending we're in a non-corona world, um, <laughs> <laughs> yes, let's pretend we're not in the non-corona world. Non-corona right. world. Um, I think the first one is mentorship. And so when I say mentorship, I always, I've always believed that every child needs to have at least one adult who truly cares about them, yet does not have a vested interest in their success, right? Okay. Because it's, it's easy for mom and dad and even grandma, whoever's raising you, to care. And the kid expects that person to care whether they show it or not, right? But if Mr. Sims down the street, you know, is saying, hey, here's this good book you should read. Oh, hey, let's, uh, you know, I'm going to help you with your homework once or twice a week. You know, whether that, you know, obviously I want that kid to succeed, right? But that child's success, you know, it doesn't do anything for me other than the fact that, all right, cool, here's another kid who's doing well. Right. I think every kid needs that because then it shows them, oh, it's not just my parents who care about me or it's not my, my parents aren't just, you know, saying noise. What my parents are actually saying is legit because this other person here who shouldn't care anything about me truly does. And they're saying the same thing my parents are saying. So I think that's the first to me, that's the first one. And I know there are some school districts that are trying to do that within their schools you know, of saying, hey, there should be at least one faculty member or one teacher in the school who has a personal relationship with, with a child. There's some, there's some cultural barriers with some of these teachers that school systems are trying to work out, especially with, with them wanting to mentor our black children. Hopefully we'll figure that one out sooner than later. Um, the other one too, though, goes to the opportunity piece. Um, you know, I stated earlier, you know, you have children whose parents have the ability to put them in a position to be successful, mm -hmm. right? Um, but most kids don't have that. Uh, and in a, in, a, in, a, in a jurisdiction, in a county like Arlington, Virginia, where we, you know, where Washington DC really is the capital of the world. And right. Arlington is, you know, arguably the fifth to seventh richest county in the country every year. There's no excuse um, for the gaps that we have um, in the success of our children. And so, and, and I've spoken with, with, with local business leaders and they're hungry to help, but they don't know what the help is. And it's not, and I wouldn't say it's not their job, but it's not within their, their wheelhouse to know how to help, which is why leadership has to go to them and say, hey, we have kids, you know, who, mm -hmm. would, who would, who would uh, um, do well being having a relationship with your company or your agency or your organization um we have a group of kids who have this issue set that they like let's let's bring them over to you let's figure out a schedule where um whether whether it's an internship so here, here's the, here's the vision i have for this it's like 
mentorship type relationship where let's just say little Tyrone, you know, he's okay, but he has no real goals or whatever. And so his guidance counselor was like, well, what do you, you know, what do you want to do? What do you want to be when you grow up? And I throw out some flippant answer, like I want to be Spike Lee, right? Like, okay, fine. We got you. You opened your mouth. You said you want to be Spike Lee. I got something for you. So we've got, we have uh, WJLA, WETA. We have um, Arlington Independent Media. They all do television, as you know. And all right, kid. We, we got it. You know, we talked to your mom. We, you know, we figure out a schedule for you once a week. Let's say little Tyrone actually likes it. You know, he's down there helping with the production staff, he's mm-hmm. putting in tape or whatever they do now in the digital age. He actually comes to like it. Right. Now he's motivated. Now maybe he's doing a little better in school. Not necessarily saying he's down the honor roll again straight A's, but he's now being more responsible. Right. So now he's thinking to myself, okay, I like this. Mm-hmm. What, what can I do for my future now, right? And so now I'm graduating from high school. Maybe I go to a film school, right? Or maybe, you know, I figure out how to make that a part of who I am professionally. But we're not giving that to our kids. You know, I, I deal with, it was, it's interesting, you're know, bringing us back to the protest. We, had a young, we have a young man um, down here in one of our historic black neighborhoods. Uh, he's an adult now, so I'll say his name just in case. But his name's Corey. Good kid. I've known him since he was in middle school. You know, his life's okay, but eh, right? All of a sudden, these protest rallies have fired him up mm-hmm. because of the relationships he's had with the police department. Not good ones, for the most part. Now this guy wants to be a social activist. Like, for real. Um, friends and mentors of mine were able to convince them to speak with our police captain to make sure that everything was good. You know, I showed up to make sure that everything was good. Right. And he's now motivated. Like, I truly believe that he has, he may have found, some, not saying this is going to be something he does for forever, but this is, this is now something that he's passionate about that's, that's positive, Right. What if someone would have inter- introduced him to something when he was in middle school or high school, right? Like, this was the first time I'd ever seen him, like, truly exhibit a real man-type maturity, right? I'd seen boy maturity and, you know, super young adult maturity, but this was man maturity. And it was great to see. But it's like, you know, if we could have introduced him to things, um, back when he was truly, you know, malleable, mm-hmm. who imagines what he could have been um, beginning at that period? Yes. So we've got making sure people at the local level can literally pass laws and, and act, pass, and execute laws that affect their community. I had no idea that in any situation that the city councils didn't have a real say into what happens in their communities. You know, that's sad because people are sitting on these city councils hoping to make a change, to make a difference. And that um, I do believe that elected officials ought to be active in their communities and you ought to be able to see them shopping in the grocery stores for the representative, for the districts that they represent. You should be able to see them around a lot. But the ministership uh, piece is one that I've worked with off and on through my whole life, whether it's in school or at work. 
And that seems to be, like I said, the one that's most valuable, but the hardest one to sustain. So is it the school board or the principal or the teacher who would reach out to a corporation or even to an organization because there's sororities and fraternities and other organizations that offer mentorship programs too. So how do you go about getting this started in your school? So there, there, there are a few ways. I mean, the way to do it strategically and robustly and, and, and in a manner that's, um, I see efficient and fair and equitable is that it's got to happen at the school board level. The school board has to, have, pay, have, has to pass policy and have a senior staff member in the position to where that person is able to have genuine meetings with senior corporate leaders, right? Mm -hmm. So that doesn't mean you have, you're hiring someone who's only making $60,000. That person is not talking to the senior vice president of Nestle, right? Um, they're going to That's talk. true. That's right. True. I mean, that's just that's, that's, a, that's the way it works, right? Right. We live in a title and salary world. Right. And so that has to happen. At the same time, though, schools have been, you know, doing their own thing, whether it's partnering with churches and to your point, partnering with sororities, fraternities, um, you know, my, my own fraternity, the Omega Psi Phi Fraternity Corporate. Uh, Pilot Atlanta chapter of Christian Catholic. They have this thing called Omega U for the young men um, that's, that's partnered with uh, Princeton County Schools. And, uh, you know, every, every weekend or so, I forget how, how uh, frequent it is, but it's regular. And this thing is grew from just a few, few little boys about 10 years ago or so to it's, it's massive. And people, you know, uh, other chapters across the country are trying to duplicate it. Mm -hmm. um, and so schools and communities and churches are able to partner, obviously churches and parts communities are able to partner and so forth. But we need some form of, um, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Not, not duplication of action, but every school needs something, mm -hmm. right? And the only way to ensure that every school has at least something, right? You know, so if we're looking at like fruit, right? Everyone has an apple. Now I may have an apple and orange, but that's because I brought the orange. But ensure everyone has at least one thing that has to begin and be led at the at the school board level. Yes, ma'am. Okay, that makes sense. So uh, my sorority does a lot of that too, um, AKA. So right, but you're right. <laughs> it has to be at the school. It needs to be in every school, no yes. matter income level, and it's got to be available to every every child because yes, it's it's almost magic to see someone who looks like you, who's been able to be successful. Right. Uh, that gives that kid, just just by seeing you, it gives them a lot of hope and know that they can do it too. Uh, it's not easy, but it's doable. It's possible, right. it can be done. So my next question is, with all the opportunities that exist now, How or what strategy should we use as individuals to determine where we fit in into the train? As we said, some people are really good at social activism, some aren't. Some are good at policy, some really love policy, and some aren't. Uh, so where would we, how do we figure out where we belong? Because it's time for all of us to take action. But how would one, listening to this, 
program decide what is it they can do to make a change and help further the cause so that we truly end up at the end of this being the people. It, it's funny when, when Secretary Clinton lost her presidential campaign, my national security group had a, had a series of meetings because they wanted to discuss what now, what do we do? Trump's the president, I'm scared, blah, blah, blah. And the answer I gave them is the same that I'll give now, is that people need to become a part of their community. Most people live somewhere for so long and never truly plant roots, right? They, they go to work, they go home, right? If they have kids at best, they take their kids to their activities and they go home. But people need to be a part of the community. Um, there are too many times, whether good or bad actions are taking place by their local elected officials, and the process has been going for a long time, and all of a sudden when it hits a crescendo, people want to raise their heads up like, oh, what's going on? Mm -hmm. We didn't know about this. But I was like, dude, this has been going on for a year and a half. Like, there have been public conversation. There have been meetings. There have been newspaper stories, right? And so to me, that is the biggest thing. Everyone can do that. Everyone can join their local civic association. Um, most, I mean, shoot, if, if you're in your fraternity or sorority, since we brought, brought them out, most of them are active in the community. They kind of have to be to maintain their, their charters, right? Yeah. Be, active with your, be active with your clubs, with your, you know, do something that makes your community better. Because when you do that, it puts you in a position of knowing what's going on uh, before, before things get bad. And it puts you in a position to where, um, and you'll never know when this, when, when this occurs, but to be in a position to lead, whether it's formally or informally. But if you just stay at home and you watch TV and you yell at the TV or you yell on Facebook, that's not enough. It's not, I mean, yeah. So to me, it's truly becoming active in your community. Everyone can do that. That's right. Everyone can even start with going to those city council meetings. Yes, ma'am. That's right. <laughs> I was uh, looking for things to do myself, other things to do. What's going on? What do I want to see changed? And there's a lot of talk about a community police force, civilian police force. And I was looking around there and lo and behold, I found out in Chicago, they have open meetings every third Thursday. It's like, yeah. I can do that. And then, as you said, you can get in on the inside, you'll know what's going on, you'll know what to stop, you know what to talk about, you know how to vote. Uh, so we're gonna reiterate, plant roots. So whatever your interest is, find some place to use it. So start with going to local chambers, city council meetings, find something to do that is in your city other than yelling and screaming and chastising people in social media. Right. <laughs> because that doesn't solve the problem. It does, it does get a lot of tension off of people, but that conversation is a conversation that needs to be had, if I hear you right, needs right. to be had in the political arena, in the, in the community arena. In where other can, who can do something about it, 
are, are present because the people who need to know about that problem don't even know you're mad. Right. Right. And I would say for black people, every black parent needs to be involved in their kids' PTA. It don't mean they got to go to every meeting because I get it. I've been there, done that technically. Um, but they need to because it's the only, the PTAs control the schools. And so if, if your school, whether it has a lot of black kids or not, if there's not a, a respectable black, popula uh, black, black population of parents acting in the PTAs, that's how your kids get ignored. That's how you can be in Prince George's County, which is the richest, uh, or yeah, richest, most populous black suburb, suburb in, in the country. The country, yes. And have a horrible school system. And it, it's just, it's sad. They got to, you got to black parents. Got to go to PTA meetings. And now that parents have had an opportunity to, to do homeschooling, <laughs> I'm sure you got a list of concerns for that next PTA meeting. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I saw a math problem uh, on Facebook because now they're teaching math. I said, oh my God, that's the long way. Why don't they teach it the short way? Like, I learned it. But it's like, see? <laughs> Nothing else. Ask that question. Go to PTA meetings. So as a, as a veteran, do you envision changes for veterans in this social unrest period? Because it seems like we take a lot from, from the military personnel. We train you or we don't train you. So we like to believe we train you, the civilians. We send you off to do these things to keep us safe. And then you get home and all of a sudden, there's a problem with housing or medicine or food. It's like, mm -hmm. so what changes would you like to see in that area be needed? So I don't know how many, how many other questions you're going to ask that are going to lead me to say what I'm getting ready to say or some semblance thereof, but folks got to vote for Joe Biden. Um, <laughs> and, <laughs> and I say that, uh, not because of what I do professionally, though I am saying for that reason too, but because what most people don't understand with the current administration is that they are doing their darnest to privatize the VA, um, which would be a travesty. Um, they've been relatively close, but fortunately the veteran service organizations like the VFW, American Legion, disabled vets and so forth, um, have been holding their ground um, are not being supportive of that action because they understand how detrimental that would be to the service, uh, to, to the health healthcare of our of our veterans, uh, myself included. Who gets I get my healthcare from the VA when I do go to the hospital. Um, but um, so I, I would fear that if President Trump were to were to win re-election, then. Um, the VA would the VA healthcare system would get prioritized, and that would that would not be good. A lack of some better words I could use. Um, with respect to the other benefits, um, you know, just like mo a lot of um, the federal departments and agencies in this current administration, they're all they've all been pretty pretty gutted. Um, there's not a whole lot of work going on, and it's not the fault of the career government employees. It's it's just the agenda of the administration and so benefits um, are suffering um, and there's the potential again for those to either get cut 
um, defunded or yeah, to get cut or defunded. So um, during this period, there isn't a whole lot you can do other than to continue to advocate and, and uh, either call or, or email, contact your, your, your uh, congressman, your two, senator, your two U.S. senators, and tell them that you don't want um, veterans to lose their benefits in any way, shape, or form, um, that you don't want to see the VA being privatized, uh, you want to see the post 9-11 GI Bill to still be funded. Uh, you know, you want to ensure that, uh, well, we're at, well, this is more of an active duty situation. So, um, but th yeah, those would be the biggest ones. Yes, ma'am. And I wasn't aware that they were trying to privatize the Veterans Administration. It's like I didn't know. So for those of you who are thinking you have no idea how to get in touch with your your representatives, there are apps that will get you there quickly. Uh, one I love is called Countable. It's a free app, and it, you can set it up to get alerts as to what's, what they're, what bills they're considering. And when you sign up for it, it locates for you your representatives. So you literally can send a message about how you feel and how you want them to vote for it, and it goes directly to your representatives. And then there's one called Five Cat Calls, which, excuse me, I believe it's the state level. So there are a lot of apps, and that's just only two. There are a lot of apps that help you get this done. So there's no longer an excuse that you can't get your word, your message, your feelings, or your ideas to your representatives because it is only through your representatives that they get, through your voice, that they get this here. And just know, you think you're one person, but they understand that Every person they're here, they hear from really represents about 50 other people. So that one message that you send is a powerful message. So that is something we can start to do today. Yep. Download those apps right now. Get familiar with what legislation is there. And I'm like, um, we just said, you don't have to do everything. Just pick something that's due to your heart and work on that thing. And that's how we can change that. So thank you for helping me to remind the audience of that. Yes, ma'am. Because there's a time for everything, and we do need we do need the civil unrest, but we've got to have the legislation part too. We've got to let those people know that we sent there, sent them there to do a job. We gotta let them know. And we've got to vote. Now Correct. it is at this point, it's almost from what I said on social media is more important that you vote than even who you vote for. Let's vote, okay? Because if, if you, you vote, vote in large, large numbers, numbers, there's no there's way, no way they can think numbers. Because people will know, not only will people know, the people who can do something about it will know. But when we show up in those small numbers like we did in the last election, we get what we got. Yeah. So if you want something different, you've got to know. Right now, there's no perfect candidate, but you got to ask, do you want something new or you want more of the same? But whatever you want, you have got to vote. People die for our right to vote. Our people die for our right to vote. And we need to vote. So start now making sure that you're on the roll. Because if you're at a voter registration is current, start all that that. Take all the ID you need, depending upon where you live. Just assume you're going to need some ID. Right. Take it. 
okay? Just assume you might need two things with your name on it. Take everything you got. You take it shopping, why don't you take it to the polls? Okay. <laughs> so, that's my cutie lesson for right now. So, ah! Sorry, my son is crashing on me. Um, that's what happens when a two, when a three-year-old starts to show for on nothing is stable. So I'm going to let this one just fall to the side <laughs> and apologize. And I guess that's what happens when a three-year-old crashes, crashes his set. But I haven't seen him in a while because we've been social distancing, and he decided he had to see his Gigi for and chocolate. <laughs> <laughs> So, is there anything before I continue? And I got a list of questions. I shared them with him earlier. He says, "Oh my God, keep them, keep them coming, man." Keep so, coming. <laughs> so when you, as a political act, activist or advocate, an advocate, <laughs> when you work with ministers, and I know you work sometimes with CEOs, is it different? Of what is expected? when you work with ministers as opposed to politicians, as opposed to people who even run their own corporations or who are officers in their own corporations? For me, there's no difference. Um, this could sound kind of funny. I don't curse. So how I speak to <laughs> them is how, how I speak to a minister is how I would speak to the CEO of a Fortune 500 company because we're all people. Um, and those are the type of people I deal with. Uh, yeah, for a minister, I might say, sir, um, a little more, even if I shouldn't because of his age. But um, no, to me, it's all the same. It's just about the mission and, you know, bringing, bringing uh, different people together um, to accomplish one goal. So no, for me, not really. Obviously, there's some conversation I can have with the four, with a personal conversation I, I can have with the CEO more so than I can with the minister. <laughs> <laughs> But, but besides from that aspect of things, I treat people as people. And if, and if someone doesn't, you know, if they kind of fall outside that, that variance of being good people or, you know, being down mm -hmm. or whatever, then I go find someone else who has the same regular, same uh, relative resume and deal with them. So I, I, would, I would imagine, I asked that question because I would imagine that one conversation would be, focused on something different. Um, sometimes ministers get the rap, uh, get, get the reputation um, only, you know, waiting on the by and by. It's all peace and love. And politicians are generally working to fatten their pockets and the corporation just wants to get rich off everybody. That's really our, our, our concepts of what we're right. But you're finding that they, they have sort of the same interest? So those do exist, of course. And, okay. they, may, and they may be the majority. But so like the ministers that, that I personally work with and have worked with in the past, have, they've been community-based and have understood the relationship between the church, the community as a whole, business, and government. Okay. Right? And understanding that. Um, at least from a minister's perspective, you know, doing the Lord's work isn't just within the four walls of the church, but it's it's the tangible and intangible um, aspects of however they're defining their mission of spreading the word of Jesus Christ outside of those walls. In order and in order to do that effectively, 
those those ministers, those pastors understand they, they have to work with business, they have to work with with the elected officials, right? And they have to work with the mm -hmm. community. Um, the same thing goes with the, the CEOs. You know, those those companies have some form of a community charge, whether it's global or local. Um, and so, yeah, the, the companies there are about making money, and that's the, and that obviously that's the case. And I wouldn't tell them not to because I like money too. But they understand that um, you know, in order for one of their projects to be truly successful. Right, they need community buy-in. Yes. Um, in order to have that community buy-in, yes. you got You have to have some aspect of relationship with the community, and if that community happens to have a church in it, or in, or so in the case of me personally, I'm on, um, I'm, I'm on a corporate board of a of an affordable housing company. Okay. And so we understand the importance of having that relationship, or those relationships with the church, with the community. Um, because yeah, we could build without without them, right? Technically, right. But you don't want to create this this uh, reputation of not caring. And so yeah, those are the type of CEOs and type of ministers mm -hmm. that I deal with. And that so goes from like you know someone like a, like a John Deere, uh -huh. you know, to a you know to a smaller company that has a CEO. So you're finding that generally when we, I guess, strip away the titles of ministers, political leaders, or even uh, heads of corporations, they still are interested in what's best for the people they serve. Does have different ways to go about it, maybe? I mean, yeah, yeah, I, yeah, I would say. Uh, okay. That's, yeah. Well, that gives us some hope, okay? That, <laughs> that gives us some hope. And, yeah, I mean, you know, it's not a bad pieces. thing to have. <laughs> <laughs> so, with maybe my last question, is in today's society when we all need to do something, and the issues with the police just keep repeating themselves and repeating themselves and repeating themselves. What two things do we need to stop? With Who's the, we? The people. What do we need to demand our, our legislation, our legislators, our city council, every government body we have that just needs to stop right now when it comes to police? What do they need to stop doing? So, let me begin answering it this way. So I had a uh, national security policy colleague reach out to our group last week. Um, he stated that he had a client or he has a client who um, wanted to connect with someone who had a professional background in um, quote unquote police interaction. Those weren't the exact words, but okay. you understand what I'm saying. Right. So I reached out to him, I said me. Right, and so he hit me back, and he had a semblance of my background, and uh, he's like, "Well, I was, you know, thinking more domestic. I was thinking, you know, my client's looking for domestic, uh -huh. um, so on and so forth." And I was like, "Well, you know, I, I have dealt with, you know, protests and near riots in Baghdad, and you know, have not had to use any form of force to, uh, to control them or end them, right?" 
Um, and you, so know, I, you know you're going to tell us how, okay? <laughs> the one story, one of those stories is actually really, really cool. But um, what I explained to him is that, and I've, I've actually, ever since that email, I've had this question asked a few times, and I've, I've always said this, that the police need a fresh eyes, on, need a fresh set of eyes on their policies. What frustrates combat veterans the most is that the stuff that police officers get away with, both the quote unquote good and the bad, we in the Army and the Marine Corps would never get away with. Because at a minimum, if I'm operating and I see someone, you know, one of my guys or just someone in my area doing something dumb, doing something illegal, unethical, or immoral, I am duty bound at a minimum to report it. But I'm definitely duty bound to stop it if I have the physical ability to do so, um, both for the righteous reasons of doing so, but also for the legal reasons of doing so. And so it frustrates us that the police aren't held to the same accountability. Ah. The fact that, that the fact that I and my and, and my uh, brothers and sisters who have shared <laughs> the same sand, you know, since we'll just say since the towers fell that we're able to constrain ourselves and, and, and use an ROE, um, rules of engagement, in okay. order to determine when to actually fire our weapons and when not to, and the police don't, to me, blows my mind. And, it, it, and so to me, it's not, and I get it, there, there are probably some smart police officers who know to do what to do what to do. But to me, I think people who have done this somewhere else need to take a look at their policies um, and, give, and give them some examples because those police officers who have not served in a combat zone actually on the ground as combat, as combat, um, combat personnel, they don't understand that violence isn't necessarily the first form, the first form of, of usage to, to, stop, to solve a problem. Okay, because they don't understand that, and they do it over and over and over and over again, and it's generally a few officers, and nobody says anything. We've, we've seen video after video where the other officers were just standing by, and this was just like Tuesday, right. this is what we right. do, and that part needs to change. So thank you for letting me know that. I had no idea. I, I guess we assume as civilians that they have minimal training anyway, and that they know how to de-escalate the situation. But I guess that's something we need to start demanding as citizens. And that's yeah. something we can demand in our own cities where we are right now. And we can take it to our legislatures, to our city council, to uh, however your city is, your political structure set up to demand. That the, rule, that the rules of engagement do change right now, not next week, but right now for police officers. Okay. Yes, ma'am. Well, our time is up, so I want to thank you for joining me today. It was great. I want to thank you for entertaining my three-year-old grandson <laughs> who showed up today and decided to play with his teaching. So. Three-year-olds are cool, so it's all good. For <laughs> <laughs> so my audience, I want, you to, I want to thank you, and I want to remind you to do not go gently into that good night. I want you to find a heel worth taking, and I want you to take it. I want you to be the person 
that you've been praying for, the miracle that you've been asking for. And I want you to do it your way. Make today so jealous, I mean, so awesome that tomorrow gets jealous. Yes, ma'am. In the meantime, remember, life is too short to drink cheap champagne. It's been my <laughs> pleasure. You guys have a great week. And we've given you enough ideas about how to go forth today uh, to change your world and be a part of the change so that we do find ourselves in short order, really living the experience of we, the people. Thank you. Good night.